Welcome. Uh, this is um, uh, another episode of the uh, Conversations on Peaceful Change, uh, sponsored by the Global Research Network on Peaceful Change. Um, and um, today we have uh, Professor John Eikenbury. He is the Albert G. Milbank Professor of Politics and International Affairs at uh, Princeton University. And uh, Professor uh, Eikenberry has, uh, or is about to publish a new book called A World Safe for Democracy, Liberal Internationalism and the Crisis of Global Order. This is published by the Yale University Press in September, although I think you can do pre-order now. I uh, was privileged to get a PDF copy he sent me early on. And I must say it is um, your magnum opus, John. It is a tremendously impressive book. Um, I think uh, what impressed me was that um, you give it a critical evaluation um, and it is deep and engaging. Um, it is not an unvarnished praise of the liberal international order, the 200 year long liberal order. Uh, but you are very sensitive to the critics' points and you are giving them some allowance. At the same time, defending liberal order uh, as uh, a good scholar would do. So let me start by asking, what are the main themes of this uh, new book? You have written a lot. I mean, must say you are the most prolific scholar on liberal order, liberalism in today's world. <laughs> what prompted you to write this book? and how different it is from your previous uh, important book, The After Victory, which uh, was a big success, I believe. Yes, thank you, TV. It's great to be uh, in your series and to have this conversation today. Um, and thank you for your kind, kind words. Um, this book is, is, can be seen as kind of a trilogy of, of, of my last books. Uh, After Victory, uh, now almost uh, 20 years ago, was a book on American, uh, well, really a book on order building after major wars. And it was uh, attempting to um, explain why states build the types of orders they do. And I looked uh, across the modern era, primarily at European cases, and tried to, uh, to make an argument about how powerful states have reasons to build orders that can be legitimate, legitimate and functional, and, uh, and so all things followed from that. My, the, the second book was Liberal Leviathan, and that book was very much looking at the American uh, case, really looking at the U.S. after World War II, and trying to develop a kind of theory of, of liberal hegemony, of, of the kind of relationships that the United States built with other uh, uh, liberal democracies uh, in the second half of the 20th century uh, with the idea that there's something distinctive about the way in which uh, order was built in that era, uh, partic particularly during the Cold War period uh, in the West, and uh, it was not well theorized by, <clears throat> by either liberals or realists. Uh, and so I was very much interested in capturing this kind of logic of order. Now the new book is looking, really pulling back and looking at not so much a particular historical era or particular 
policy, uh, political formation, but looking at a set of ideas of, as they have evolved over the last 200 years. So it's really a, the, the focus is different. It's on liberal internationalism as a tradition and how it has uh, evolved over really 200, 250 years and how we can think about uh, its impact, its, its varieties, how it has um, uh, coped with uh, the uh, crises and turning points of the last uh, uh, two centuries. Uh, and to answer your question, why, why did I do it? I think uh, it started with, of course, the current moment. As books do, we look in the past with a new, with a new angle because we are living a new experience. What can the past tell us about, <clears throat> about today's moment? So I'm, in some sense, what I try to do in that book is provide a portrait of liberal internationalism as it has, uh, in some sense, encountered moments not unlike today's. Uh, for example, the 1930s and early 1940s. Uh, uh, the, the kind of um, uh, uh, close run, um, hard fought, deeply contested moments when liberal democracies and the even the kind of the, the principles of liberal democracy and certainly the kind of principles of international order that liberal democracies have tried to uh, uh, populate the world with uh, were up for grabs. Mm. So um, looking back uh, with a kind of uh, argument that the post-World War, post-Cold War era, post-1989 era was in many ways anomalous that most of the last two centuries have been uh, uh, periods where uh, um, it wasn't obvious that liberal democracy was the most uh, successful or certainly the preeminent uh, type of, of, of polity in the world. And so uh, uh, trying to go back and retell the story of liberal internationalism, what it is as a theory mm. that often sits beside realism as one of the two big theories of international relations, uh, but do so with a more world-weary, um, even somewhat skeptical eye, what, what is it, how is it maneuvered across these centuries, and how has it uh, entangled itself in nationalism, empire, uh, uh, hegemony, and uh, uh, racial and cultural hierarchies? Yes, that's something I will come back um, when I was uh, visiting you at uh, Oxford, where you were doing research, uh, you were going through a lot of primary documents. I must say that was um, quite an interesting experience. But that is the question I have. Um, this 200-year-long evolution has been involved with a lot of violence, not always um, uh, perpetrated by the liberal states, of course, but toward the liberal states. Um, by the Nazis or communists, you know, whatever you want to call it. And um, the liberal states have done a lot of bloodletting, you know. I mean, how do you explain that in your book, this part of liberalism, which is supposedly a peaceful idea or, you know, approach? Yeah, that's a, a good question. And I've thought a lot about that. And the first move that the book makes is to think about liberal internationalism as a set of ideas and political projects that are 
that are more or less found in the world, that are more or less taken up by powerful states. The Britain in the 19th century, the United States in the 20th century clearly uh, have embraced liberal internationalism to some extent. But one of the things that I try to argue in the book is that everything that's happened over the last 200 years uh, uh, in the hands of liberal states has not necessarily been liberal. That is to say, these states are not intrinsically that and that alone. They are also realist states. They are uh, they are they are uh, they 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 are states that have uh, uh, geopolitical incentives that that are not uh, tied to liberal internationalism. So I, I guess what the first thing you need to do is is not necess- is not concede the point that everything that so-called liberal states do uh, are liberal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so so. Um, there are, for example, during the uh, uh, Cold War, uh, uh, the U.S. engaged in lots of behavior that is best explained by realism and uh, 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 counterbalancing uh, uh, geopolitics and a lot of interventionism and uh, wars in the in the uh, periphery uh, have a logic that is not necessarily traceable back to liberal international ideas. So, uh, so that's point number one. Point number two is, it is true that liberal internationalism is deeply entangled in these other forces that have shaped the modern world. So I, I, I argue in the book that uh, liberal internationalism, of course, a set of ideas that emerged out of the uh, Enlightenment after the age of democratic revolution, uh, emerged in, in a Western system that was uh, engaged even in this mo- moment of, of origins in, in a great deal of empire and imperialism. Yes. Um, so, so liberal internationalism entered a world where empire was the dominant form of political order and it was uh, deeply uh, entangled on the British side with, with imperialism. Liberal internationalists, such as uh, uh, in, in the 20th century, Jan Smuts and uh, 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 other uh, uh, British diplomats were simultaneously strong defenders of empire and devoted liberal internationalists. Mm. Uh, uh, so, uh, so there has been a kind of entanglement uh, that uh, I, I try to admit and then try to argue in chapters and a specific focus in a later part of the book on the topic of liberalism and empire on ways in which liberalism has both found kind of alliance with empire and imperialism, but importantly, at least in the 20th century, found ways to uh, differentiate itself and push itself off of imperial projects. Or formal empires. Let me bring that, um, bring up that question a bit more, because this enlightenment project, the Europeans um, did tremendous good for the world. Later on, of course, people drew ideas from them. But at the same time, the Enlightenment was a very racist project. I mean, they had the understanding that uh, Europeans are the uh, epitome of uh, civilization. The rest are, you know, depending on the color of the person, it goes down in the system of hierarchy. And how did the liberals justify that? And there is a discussion in your paper that there is social Darwinism coming in this period as well. And the empire was a necessary force for civilizing, quote unquote, 
the so-called uh, races that um, the Europeans thought were inferior in some sense, and the American early liberals too. So this, this entanglement, I, I think I learned a lot from reading your book because the understanding of enlightenment is uh, progressive, scientific, rationality, uh, human beings are all equal and all that thing. But it seems that liberals had a justification in their minds. Now we, in hindsight, look at them and say, okay, they were not correct, but uh, obviously this is the era of social Darwinism. No? And so tell a little bit about this connection and justification. Yeah, I, I, I make the observation, others have made it as well, that the... Um, 19th century liberals, you think of John Stuart Mill uh, as a kind of epitome of this position, uh, were, had this kind of view that, that there were vanguards and laggards, that there were uh, enlightened societies with, which were mature and capable of, of certain kinds of sustaining certain kind of political orders and others that were not yet there. So there's a, a sense that empire is not a permanent uh, reality, but something that is kind of there because of deeper asymmetries and hierarchies that themselves evolve as modernity itself evolves. So some liberals were able to presumably sleep at night because they thought that they were involved in, in as uh, Mill himself argued, a kind of um, process of, of galvanizing a global process of development and modernization and and that empire i think he famously argued mill did that uh, empire and and even colonial forms of empire uh, had a kind of uh, effort, had a kind of impact on breaking uh, blockages to development and so there's a there is a real uh, a real sense of uh, uh, patronizing uh, uh, superiority uh, it was both cultural and racial. Um, uh, in the 19th century, Darwinism, of course, is, is, is involved in the, inside of the West in this kind of uh, uh, rise of, of what some people called scientific racism, this, this almost a kind of construction of race uh, and the differentiation of race. So that was, became very tied, tied up to what we might, we might call the, the second wave of European empire. The first wave being the older colonial empire. Um, so, uh, so there is definitely uh, a, a internationalists who we now can label as kind of proto or early liberal internationalists were 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 uh, working within those imaginaries that are deeply racist, deeply hierarchical. Uh, uh, some like Mill arguing that there would be a kind of evolution towards, uh, of all societies in a direction that would uh, bring them all closer to what, what uh, these theorists, these liberal theorists thought were ideal polities. But uh, that in a sense was a, a way of legitimating asymmetries uh, and, uh, and creating complicity with, with those, those hierarchical systems. Yes. Um, so yeah, I think that's, uh, that's, very so much inside of the, the tradition. Yeah, so let me uh, bring you to the United States, which is quite fascinating. It, uh, uh, the liberals underwent a lot of changes from Wilson to Woodrow Wilson to Roosevelt. That story is fascinating. 
Um, and uh, tell us a little bit about this Woodrow Wilson saga, because today he is in the news in your own school. It's a big news. I, I understand the school changed its name. Woodrow Wilson's contributions, uh, the 14 points, League of Nations, whatnot, uh, self-determination, but he was an utter racist in many ways. I mean, I, I hate to use the word, but he contributed a lot. And what was his justification for domestically? He had uh, a lot of racist ideas internationally too. He wasn't for self-determination of the, the colonies but for European, uh, the states of the European, uh, declining European empires. What was this idea that Wilson was trying to propagate? Although I must say, and you rightly point out in the book, that the national liberation movements, in, including India, took up this Wilsonian self-determination and, and made use of it later on. But initially, it was not meant for these uh, colonies of British Empire in particular. Yeah, I think Wilson is, a, is in some ways the poster child of how uh, liberal, liberals and liberalism uh, failed to, uh, and for, with grievous consequences, failed to recognize and act upon uh, uh, racism in their societies. I, he was uh, very much kind of in two worlds. He was to some extent in the, a world of liberalism that it ties itself to these universal principles, the, the preamble of the, U, of the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal, uh, uh, the Lincoln's second founding of the people, for the people, by the people. Uh, so uh, liberals and Wilson among them, among them uh, buying into these kind of universalisms that, that uh, in some sense are cutting against uh, uh, racial hierarchies, uh, political hierarchies of various sorts, um, but never uh, fully uh, taking those ideals to their logical conclusion. So w Wilson was very much uh, a crusty old Southern politician who brought with him his racist ideas that were not um, an order of magnitude outside of, of, of the world he lived in. So he was very much uh, a, a racist, as were others of that era, Teddy Roosevelt, other leaders, and of course, those who would later succeed him uh, in Western societies into the middle and late 20th century. Uh, so, so, uh, so that is definitely there. Um, and it is a kind of um, deep kind of disappointment, a kind of, uh, of sadness that uh, some of the that that this that figures of his, uh, uh, such as Wilson uh, were incapable of of uh, or exhibited this kind of moral blindness. Mm. And uh, W. E. B. Du Bois, who uh, was the leading uh, black uh, social thinker in America uh, during this era, um, voted for Wilson in. Uh, 1912, sought to enlist Wilson, to inspire Wilson. Wilson never really uh, came, came to the point where he could realize uh, that, uh, that he, he was operating uh, with, the, with these older retrogressive views. 
Du Bois came to, to Paris for the peace conference, again, seeking a, a meeting with Wilson, seeking to put uh, the, the scourge of racism on the agenda for the Versailles settlement. Again, Wil Wilson never met him. And uh, so there's a kind of sense of, of, of sadness that he could say these great things. He could inspire us with the 14 points. He could be the first global leader of a major state to to argue that the norm of self-determination should be embedded in the international order, who elevated democracy as a global norm, yes. but who ultimately uh, uh, and tragically uh, was less than enlightened in these other ways. Yes. And that brings to uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt. You are much kinder to him as most of the world is, because he's probably the one who broke the empires in terms of this uh, Western liberal idea that the empires aren't all that good. You had uh, Germany and Japan, two of the most sophisticated, uh, Japan, of course, westernized, um, imperial powers doing exactly against everything that liberalism stood for. And, and post-war settlement, post-World War II settlement um, should include these colonies or uh, non-independent states and that the European empire should disband, um, which is not very well known. You know, people somehow think, I mean, I come from India and the understanding is Gandhi got us independence, but the self-determination that the United States supported should be applauded to some extent. Doesn't mean it was genuine later on in some instances, but what do you think of Franklin D. Roosevelt's contribution? And, and that connection you make to Germany and Japan is quite interesting. Yes, one of the arguments in my book is that the liberal international tradition should be rethought and, 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 and uh, the center of gravity moves really to the 30s and 40s and away from Wilson, that Roosevelt really was more so than Wilson, was the uh, embodied this, this, this newer, more, uh, I would say, more enlightened uh, uh, liberal internationalism. So, so uh, so Roosevelt. Roosevelt um, was a Wilsonian. Uh, he worked in the Wilsonian in the Wilson's cabinet as in a uh, in the naval department. Uh, uh, and uh, in the twenties, he gave speeches around the country as a promising politician on sort of how the world might uh, learn lessons from the failure of the League of Nations, the failure of the United States to join the League. But I think the most critical. Uh, move was Wilson was Roosevelt's um, uh, um, the New Deal and the kind of domestic experimentation uh, uh, that uh, led to uh, a kind of search for a middle ground between what was emerging in some countries fascist and totalitarian responses to the Great Depression and the kind of collapse of the world economy uh, um, and kind of 19th century uh, market society that clearly wasn't functioning. So there was a, a kind of experimental, pragmatic uh, 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 notion that uh, was tied to a, a kind of an evolving notion that, that liberal democracy should do more, that they should be providing uh, security, not just uh, national security, which is a term that was also being invented at the time, but, but economic security, social security. Uh, so this notion of, of, of what you needed in a world order, 
was evolving, that it needed to be more than simply international law and collective security. There needed to be a, a more comprehensive international order that would allow liberal democracies to, to um, have, and governments of liberal democracies to have capacities to perform at a higher level and provide security in these new ways. Yes. And then the second, this one other little thing was the ideological competition in the 1930s was itself a stimulant. The fact that the new order that was being articulated by propagandists in Nazi Germany and that the Soviet Union was itself uh, putting forward to the world that it had a kind of model of, of how to deal with the travails of modernity and the, the crises of the 1930s. So there was a kind of ideologicalization of the struggle for finding solutions to problems of, of industrial society that elevated the liberal democratic uh, uh, um, uh, 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 offering in that larger global contest. And that had great uh, impact on the actual ideas themselves. Yes, it's quite interesting because they're drawing ideas from European socialists and welfare state and welfare state even started in Russia, as uh, you know, um, to prevent uh, communist takeover of the working class who were coming out of the Great Depression, etc. This is a fascinating story of liberal adaptation. But I want to bring, uh, since we have uh, another 10 minutes or so, to discuss today's challenges. And you discuss, uh, along with many others, that it is a domestic challenge mostly. But you also have a good section on um, globalization and its impact and what the Clinton administration thought when they engaged China, um, expecting the modernization or liberal um, incorporation of China and Russia to some extent, although Russia, I think it was a lot because of geopolitical reasons. So the point is that um, globalization did not work out the way United States liberals in particular expected. Tell us why Clinton expected and what were the limitations of getting China as a democratic state, let's put it that way. That's a great question. And uh, I, I, I even feel like, I, I mean, I struggle with this question and uh, because I was very much of the view uh, in the 1990s uh, uh, that that this kind of liberal order that had existed inside of the uh, Cold War bipolar system would provide a kind of framework for the larger system and that countries on the periphery, including China, would, if not organize themselves to, to be fully a part of it or to become a full-fledged liberal democracy, that it would have a kind of, that the integration would have transformative effects on China, that there would be uh, empowerment of, of in, inside of China of forces that would uh, be, uh, uh, in some sense, given more autonomy by the market as as capitalism took hold in China. So th there was a, I think, a fairly coherent theory, uh, if you will, behind what was being done. But I, I'd make a couple other points. One is that it wasn't fully a a choice point. There was all along from uh, Bush Sr. to Clinton to, to, uh, to, to Bush Jr. To, to, and to Obama, there was a, a kind of sense that uh, the alternatives uh, were, were not really uh, 
available, a kind of containment of China, exclusion of China, uh, how would that be implemented? Uh, and there was a sense that uh, in the demand for inclusion was growing across the board in Eastern Europe, countries in East Asia were making their transitions uh, to market, uh, to market uh, strategies of development and making democratic transitions. So the kind of system mobilizing in this direction was not simply orchestrated by Washington or by London or Paris. It was a kind of global process that was involved pushing and pulling and, uh, and the absence of, a, of, an, of an alternative model that states could uh, attach themselves to. So all that being said, I'm not sure that if you run the tape back that there was a kind of moment when a, a kind of mistake was, make, was made. There were bets that were placed that were not unreasonable. And I think it's fair to say that it's not entirely uh, clear that the alternative, which is to say a fully contained blockade against China that would have begun in the 1990s would lead to a, a, a better world that we would be living in. Would we really be better off? Would China be behaving? Uh, how would China be behaving? Uh, uh, so the counterfactual is, is kind of uh, sobering. Uh, so did China do what many people hoped? No. Will they eventually? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but uh, it is true that liberals like myself do have to kind of think back and rethink some of the broad arguments because we are surprised in many ways. And President Xi is clearly taking China in a direction that uh, is away from liberal order. But using uh, a lot of liberal instruments, WTO, international institutions, and the trade and technology that the Western states have helped China. And he has no compunction in uh, using them for expanding this Chinese empire. His vision is civilizational state of yesteryears. years, no? Yes. I, what the, the argument I make in the book, and it's foreshadowed in this uh, foreign, foreign affairs article that, that came out in the current issue, that what happened was the, the club-like nature of, of liberal order, which was a, like a club, a sense that you're inside or you're outside. And if you're inside, you have, you have uh, benefits that flow, but you also have responsibilities and and uh, it's conditional, the kind of conditionality of membership, uh, NATO, but also it, the regional trilateral organizations we associate with the, the, the Cold War era liberal order. As the, the world evolved away from that after the Cold War, the so-called inside order, the, the Western liberal order that was built during in the shadow of the Cold War became the outside order. So the inside order became the outside order, and it lost that club and uh, conditionality logic and became what I describe as a kind of shopping mall where states could kind of walk in and walk out and go to this store, to that store, to, to, to partake in some of it, but not all of it, and certainly not to buy into or feel obliged to buy into a full suite of obligations 
and responsibilities. Yes. And so China clearly did, in that sense, get things without fully making, taking steps uh, to, to, in, in the way that many people were hoping. I want to talk a little bit, I will come back to the final discussion about China and the emerging order. About the U.S., uh, this imperial tendency, especially under uh, Bush too, and uh, the big challenge was uh, U.S. was engaging in forceful regime change and a lot of uh, support for illiberal regimes, even today is continuing with Saudi Arabia and others. This tension between geopolitical slash imperial tendencies and liberal tendencies seem to persist in American foreign policy. And the realist criticism is that uh, liberalism is a cover for real politic behavior by this imperial state. And uh, liberalism gives a good cover because it's ideologically very appealing for those who are participants into it. What do you, how do you discuss this contradiction in American foreign policy? Well, a couple of points. One is uh, a point I made earlier in our conversation today, which is to say that um, liberal internationalism as a kind of set of ideas and projects for organizing the world uh, have been in some sense uh, always at the mercy of larger global formations for their influence and impact. Uh, no one, as I argue in the book, uh, marches to the, to the music of liberal internationalism. Liberal internationalism has, has had an impact in the world when it has been in coalition with other forces, nationalism, empire, uh, great power politics, and hegemony. And it's true that, that it, it's had its greatest impact when it's been harnessed to British hegemony, American hegemony in the 19th and 20th centuries, respectively. But in, in those kind of fateful coalitions, mm -hmm. when liberal internationalism is a end for liberals, but a means for realists, um, uh, it, it, it ties itself to... Uh, behaviors that may not simply be liberal international. And so that, that's the first, the first point is, is not to accept guilt, so to speak, for everything that, that states that we call liberal states do. And a lot of what they do, particularly during the Cold War, is, is easily explained by John Mearsheimer's realism, as he would readily admit. Uh, so the question is, when does liberalism add that extra ingredient that makes intervention by a, by a liberal state like the United States more likely mm. and therefore more harmful in some sense. Yeah, and, uh, I don't know. Bush and, yeah. Bush and Cheney so, is interesting too. Yeah. Cheney, uh, Rumsfeld, were they, I, I, I don't see them as liberal internationalists. They certainly, the Bush administration, the second inaugural and some neoconservatives who are kind of buying into part of what we call liberal internationalism, mm. uh, democracy promotion, uh, are using it. But even in the Iraq case, I try to argue that, uh, and some work I've done with Dan Dudney mm. uh, in an article in Survival, argue that, um, uh, that um, the, the ultimate logic and cause and origins of the Iraq war were not traced to a kind of a liberal imagination. It was very much 
hegemony and geopolitics uh, in the Middle East. Mm. Let me conclude by like a kind of a futuristic scenario. Um, you rightly point out that the liberal states were successful in adapting partly because they were the wealthiest states. They were imperial powers. They had the two big hegemonies, the British and the American. What happens when the wealth shifts to the East? As we know, China and potentially India will have about over 50% of world's uh, wealth in uh, 20, 30 years as they were in the 17th, 18th centuries until the Europeans colonized parts of China and most of India. And the question is, and the liberals also had the best technology of war and defensive deterrent systems. And defense, and the other big challenge is demography, demographic, because the Western countries don't have sufficient population. It's basically unless you have a good immigrants, immigration strategy, your population declining. And um, so what is the prognosis? Because uh, on the one hand, humans want freedom and prosperity. Among all the systems, liberalism is the one that offers, despite all its blemishes. The other systems offer some, but not the freedom that humans want, China in particular today. So liberals ended up in wars and conflicts and winning all the time, or almost all the time. And what happens when this transformation takes place? A bit like the collapse of the Eastern Roman Empire and the arrival of the Ottomans to Turkey. And you know the transformation that we didn't expect to happen. Thousand years of uh, Eastern Roman Empire and uh, uh, the Byzantines, and then goes that away, and, and then comes this extraordinary challenge to world order. So, what do you, what do you think? I mean, I know it's a big question, but this transformation and whether liberals can adapt, whether some form of liberalism will persist despite this uh, Chinese or other authoritarian populist onslaught, which we didn't talk much about, but clearly that's a challenge to globalization and liberalism. How will liberal order persist, or will it go down in the as he history as otherisms did in the past. Yes, that's the that is the the great question, and I, I it, it goes to the the most uh, basic kind of world historical questions about develop moral development, about uh, the Enlightenment, about uh, the freedom agenda, about uh, about uh, modernity and the fate of liberal modernity, and it, you know it's at the core. It's, it's really that 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 old classic question. Is liberal modernity a, a a kind of universal logic that anybody anywhere can embrace? And it happened to emerge in the West, but it could have emerged elsewhere. And it's not simply tied to history or geography or culture. Or is there a hundred years from now, looking back, uh, will we uh, will kind of reasonable? Uh, theorists argue that, well, now we know and that this liberal democratic era was very much tied to the power of the West and that it lost its way when that power declined. So those we don't know. Uh, we're kind of trying to figure this out. Um, uh, my own view is that um, uh, if the question really can be taken one step back to uh, the, the future of liberal democracy. Uh, if 
50 years or 100 years from now, there will be thing, polities called liberal democracies uh, that are, have these basic characteristics, rule of law, limited government, constitutional uh, uh, systems, uh, free speech, uh, free press, civil society, that kind of cluster of characteristics that we associate with, with, the, with liberal democracy and the liberal ascendancy, if those kind of countries survive, even if they don't spread to everywhere, but if they survive at least in some kind of core set of countries, I'm optimistic that those countries will seek to organize themselves uh, in a way that we will describe as liberal internationalist, trying to cooperate through cooperative security, multilateral institutions, um, uh, creating the conditions that will make liberal democracy safe. I think. We, for the near and middle term, I think we can be clear that we aren't going to have a kind of uh, triumph of liberal democracy as a, in, in the way it was suggested by end of history theorists of the 1990s, but, but that uh, there is a kind of more pragmatic, uh, uh, um, uh, agonistic uh, liberal internationalism, not unlike what we saw uh, emerging under the auspices of Franklin Roosevelt and others in the 1930s and early 40s, a kind of protective agenda for um, make, remain, keeping liberal democracies viable in a world where there are lots of other types of political projects, models of modernity, where there's despotism, violence, uh, um, and, and all the things we associated with, with the illiberal uh, offshoots of history. So it's a more modest future. It's a kind of survival guide to, to, for, for liberal democracies that they are, that liberal democracy is a kind of, and liberal internationalism has a kind of, its, its kind of basic message is not unlike the, you know, Benjamin Franklin's uh, which he gave to the 13 colonies on July 4th, 1776, right at that great moment when Franklin said uh, in his message to the 13 colonies, we will hang together or we will surely hang separately. Mm -hmm. uh, so too liberal democracies in an era when China and Russia and illiberal states are seeking to take the world in a different direction, there's there's an incentive to stick together, to create a kind of life raft by tying the individual rafts together to create a more solid, durable, resilient, uh, loose federation of liberal democracies. And so in the end of my book, I try to, to envisage a kind of liberal internationalism for hard times that doesn't think we can take on the world, but given the problems of modernity and the challenges to liberal democracy, there is a kind of passage there. Yes. And we've, been, we've done it before and we can do it again. Yeah, but you, we had good leaders. I mean, Roosevelt was a good example. I think the, the challenge, I mean, the good part is, if you want to call it, populists are going to fail and they're already failing in uh, handling these major crises of the day. And uh, people may have to return to some kind of uh, social democratic order. Uh, 
Um, there are obviously challenges, the technology of control that uh, states will have, and human beings can be like the 1984, uh, you know, the, the novel that talks about this controlling. But at the same time, there's the two tendencies definitely are going to work in tandem in the for emerging world. So John, thank you so much. I must say that um, I think we covered quite a bit, but the book is, uh, once again, I encourage uh, anyone who wants to get a balanced understanding of international order, liberal order, because it's very polemical. There's a lot of uh, for and against, and people equate liberalism with neoliberalism, which I think is an offshoot, but not the only thing. Um, and we need to understand the value of liberalism and the shortcomings. And I appreciate that you did that in this book. And uh, good luck with the book. And I'm sure it will do very well, as all your previous book did. Thank you so much, John. Thank you, TV. It's wonderful to be with you. <laughs>